one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is part two of our two-part Houston special, where myself and Robin Siemengal of Wired Magazine went down to the Johnson Space Center and got an in-depth tour. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me for this episode is Gene McCulka, Kat Robinson, and spaceflight contributor for Wired Magazine, Robin Siemengal. We now continue our conversation already in progress from last episode. Total nerd out. Exactly. So then from there, we went to Building 9, which, from what we understand, is the really, really cool building. Yeah. Uh, besides Mission Control. It's, the, but v- it's, it's the VAB of Johnson Space Center, for sure. That's a very good way to put it. That is the mock-up facility in which they have an entire mock-up of every single module of the International Space Station. Even Beam. Uh, even Bigelow. Even Air- the Beam module. Even Bigelow Airspace Beam. Which has been extended to three years aboard the space station. So there was that. They had uh, all of the rovers they've been using for lunar rover testing. You may have seen videos of it. They were there. They had a robot arm. They had for shuttle docking. There was a whole actual shuttle docking ring. Uh, They had an entire Sarge, I believe, which is one of the solar alpha rotary joints. Wow. That's on board the space station. They had the Soyuz. They had a whole Soyuz. Yeah, with the um, with the service module and everything. Holy wow! And 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 this this is just strictly for training purposes. Yeah, pretty much. Wow! And there was a team on the ground there, kind of overseeing everything, and they were there as we were there, even though there wasn't any real training going on at the time. Mm-hmm. But actually, there was. They were doing a uh, fire a fire escape test it kind of it started kind of at the end of our our tour there, I believe. There were spectators from. They were visiting the, the visitor's complex in the uh, walkway above, looking down. That was the bizarre thing, which, yes, at the actual mock-up, they were doing some form of fire training, uh, which they were also filming. But while we were on the floor, they again, they took us onto the floor of this as opposed to the viewing area. There's people that come through the actual visitor complex on a tour, and they're in this whole other room with a glass partition a floor or two above us, which... If you've ever taken any of the Kennedy Space Center tours back in the day when they used to take you to see the space station processing facility, it was kind of like that. And yet they're just waving to us and we're down here going, we're, we're, we're nobody special, but we'll, we'll wait <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just picturing this. Here you are. You're, you're doing some very, very hard work. You know, you're, you're, you're training for, you know, essentially a fire exercise, which theoretically could save your life one of these days. And then you have a bunch of spectators watching this thing above you. And, you know, no pressure at all. 
you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it's just, you know, it, 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 it's just kind of surreal. You know, I mean, picture yourself if you have an office job, picture yourself doing that office job and then having a gallery just watching you kind of punch, crunch your numbers or something like that. It's just that that's just wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm just picturing how, how freaky that is. I guess it's a lot worse if you're uh, doing an EVA and everyone's watching live on NASA TV. Well, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> but here's you know the 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 difference there is um, I, I guess is is this this is the actual deal where um, the training is just it, it it just just to me is it, it, it's weird it it's like when you go over and pan over to Mission Control you have have the uh, the camera going and so on and so forth and there's everybody on the consoles and picture yourself going ahead with the camera and going hi you know as this thing kind of pans over and everybody's kind of looking at you you know <laughs> sipping coffee thing. you know yeah. whatever and also picture yourself here being two space reporters that are going on the floor you're then meeting up with an astronaut in front of the mock-up of the orion capsule and all these people are just watching you go right up to the capsule like are they astronauts are they what not knowing that we were just about to go chat with an astronaut that was also just hanging out there waving at people <laughs> there are things in the facility that are just for show um there's a couple of vehicles that they can drive around with that are basically useless um when it comes to informing on any future space exploration there's also a a, a, a small robot built by darpa that kind of just hangs out there and you know there's a couple of things just laying around that are that seem like museum pieces but the big draw in that facility is the space station mock-up and all the module mock-ups. Yeah, and they still had a shuttle mock-up there too. Right? Oh, really? Right. Yes, it was a partial a partial mock-up of a shuttle. At right? least of the the crew cabin and all. Mm -hmm. that. Right. And a full scale mock-up of Orion. Which before we get into the interviews on that, one thing that was really cool is they had cameras looking inside it, and this is one that is actually used for testing. So about a week or two before we were there. They were testing, they were using it for training uh, in regards to escaping, say, on the launch pad if something goes wrong and getting out quickly. So they were learning new procedures as they modify the interior, which we really hadn't seen what the setup was going to be like with the seats on the inside. Uh, Robin, you actually got to go up the stairs and into it. Can you just very briefly describe what it looked like? In the most layman terms... You have the capsule, the pointy end of the capsule. The the seats are pointing in that direction, but it's off by quite a few degrees. So it's very awkward looking. That's the way I would describe it. And I've had plenty of interaction with uh, the EFT-1 capsule and the EM-1 capsule at, at Kennedy Space Center, which is being built in the operations and checkout building. But that was this was the first time I've seen the, the positioning of the seats, and it was just very awkward to me. I couldn't place it in my head. Uh, I couldn't tell you what it exactly looks like, but it's it's off position. It's not quite center, but it is pointing towards the sharper end of the capsule. Yeah, it's not quite center. It's not quite per All the seats are not quite perfectly straight. They're all kind of angled in a bit. It's, it's very bizarre. It is, again, it's hard to describe it, but... Uh, if you've seen what the flight deck looks like on the space shuttle, it's not that. <laughs> no, definitely not. So again, as we were talking about before, we were hanging with an astronaut. That was uh, Steve Bowen, who has flown on shuttle a bunch of times and is still an active astronaut. 
So basically, he's still there to help out with any kind of training. And uh, as you'll hear him talk about, he is there helping get things ready for Orion and uh, still pretty active. So uh, let's hear from astronaut Steve Bowen. So the, the, the mock-ups are that Some accurate. of them are that accurate. Actually, the, the big metal truss you see right here, Yeah, that actually has at the bottom end where it's rotated at the bottom is a surge ring, solar alpha rotary joint, which is the big joint that rotates the solar arrays. Right, right. Space station. So it's complete, mechan completely mechanical? Yeah, and actually, it used to be in a warehouse. Uh, I can't remember where. And on my very on my first flight, our job was to go fix that because mm -hmm. uh, it had started to fail. And so we actually hands-on changed out, practiced changing out the, all the bearings on there and the drive motor and everything else. We didn't have to do, do, do the drive motor on orbit, but right. that is... Uh, a perfect example of what this building is used for. Uh, they, of course, didn't move it over here until after we had done the work because right, right, right. they had told us when you launched this thing that it was never going to fail, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, to engineers, humans, so much of what we think <laughs> is perfect, yeah. um, you know, we find new ways to break things. Yes. Yeah. Sort of what astronauts do, which is sort of what we're trying to do here with Orion. Right, finding ways to find the problem find before the, the problem. problem happens. Yep, and uh, sort of optimize what we've got and uh, see if what we think we're doing actually will work in the volume we're given. Uh, so this, this is actually the second mock-up of, I can't remember what the first one was called, but when they first did the down select years ago, uh, one of the competing companies for the capsule uh, that didn't get selected donated their engineering mock-up, which was a really rough mock-up, used to sit right there. Uh, but that gave us a first thing to go in and play with because we haven't had anybody that's flown in the capsule um, from U.S. soil in a long time. Right. And uh, so we got a much higher fidelity mock-up here. Uh, so we've used this over the past few years to do some, a lot of development, you know, where the displays are located. If you look in here, you can see some of the camera and where the displays are relative to the seats, how the seats are laid out for the four crew members. So this is as accurate as you guys as we have, can do right as, now as, at this moment, right? Yeah. Okay. So actually, uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the front half there, you see that arcing piece of metal right. structure right there. Mm -hmm. So that is actually the launch abort system hatch, mm -hmm. uh, which previously wasn't there. We added that to do some egress testing and training, and uh, it, it's funny because we, we're doing testing and training at the same time because. Uh, we are learning as the system develops, right. which is important because the more we know uh, about how the system was built and developed, we can pass that on to the people uh, who follow us for one, and it helps us understand what we're actually going to be doing. So they added that. There's a, there's a couple geometric differences that they couldn't fix right off the bat, but ultimately you'll get more high fidelity as we understand the system better. As we had, as actually as the design gets closer to reality. Right. Too. So let's say the design, you know, improves or they upgrade the design a little bit over yep. the next six months to a year. How do you guys account for that here? You change you, it. You build up build up this model. Yeah, we can do a lot of changes yeah. here, uh, but you don't want to change something. Uh, you want to sort of do things uh, as best you can within the budget. So if you within were trying budget, to right. right, if you were trying to keep up with every little change, every you, you couldn't do it. You will right? be doing it this for years. You'd be doing it yeah. perpetually, yeah. and yeah. you'd be perpetually changing it, as opposed to opening it up. So you, you kind of, we had a lot of discussion about the geometry of that last hatch, mm -hmm. 
relative to our understanding of reality uh, to see if we uh, if it would provide a sufficient fidelity to do an accurate assessment of can I look in that escape window? Oh yeah, we, can we go up on the stairs? Yeah, so we did, uh, we had suited egress testing training here a few weeks ago. And once again, always we try and get as much out of every one of these tests as we can. So we had some of the suit techs uh, here for the, the suit that we're looking at using, which is a modified ACES suit. The ACES is the suit we use for the shuttle, for our shuttle flights. And it's been modified. Uh, so we had the suit techs here. We got ourselves strapped in, in the configuration that we currently believe the strap-in is gonna actually be. Uh, we had them strap us in. We actually had one of the guys, I had this job for a while uh, as a crew support astronaut for the shuttle. We used to strap in the crew. And uh, once we got strapped in, we'd be the last people to wave goodbye to the crew as they took off. So Barry Wilmore was over here. He had, he had done that job. I think he was probably the, one of the longest serving support astronauts he did it for years he liked going to the cape so you know i don't blame him for that i did it for about a year and uh but he was helping strap in and then we practiced uh you know getting out and seeing how the egress was and then we did a couple emergency egresses uh, i was one of the suited subjects and we you basically they moved you around from seat to seat because every seat is a little bit different as to what you have to crawl over who you have to kick out of your way you know and uh, well, and you, you think about that seat position, it's got uh, pros and cons to it. In essence, it's very similar to the, like the shuttle launch configuration. That mock-up actually used to be able to tilt on its back and sort of point in. And we used to do the same sort of testing and training there as we do here, where we get the crew strapped in and uh, the team from the Cape would come and practice emergency egressing us, tossing us out of there. Uh, so the big difference is like when we did testing on there when I would volunteer they'd make me I did this a couple times they'd make me the commander because I'm not the smallest of astronauts and they put me in the commander seat which is like the furthest away from the hatch and it was amazing how quickly they could get you out but they would basically drop they pull you out of the seat basically drop you down to a board and slide you out and the first time I did it I was like no wonder nobody else volunteers for this <laughs> but they could get you out really quickly and the same thing here uh, so the, one of the, the team that was practicing uh, that egress, emergency egress, trying to get the, somebody out, it, it's, it's actually pretty difficult. There's, a lot of, there's not a lot of room, there's a lot of things you get hung up on, the straps, uh, the hardware itself. And so they took a lot of measurements, made a lot of assessments as to different possible configurations. We're modifying things as we go. Some things, you know, some of the stuff we've been cycling so much that we've, we've worn it out already, in essence. And so um, you kind of do the best you can for now, knowing that it's, we're iterating, right? We're, we're, not, we're not there yet. We're going to get an iteration here, and we'll be able to hopefully get better, closer to a, a practical design, uh, which can accommodate not just the ideal engineering, but the real engineering, which is really, really going to work. So what's the timeline for egress that you need to meet for that? Well, I think we were using two minutes. Um, we got out most of the time in just over a minute-ish plus uh, for all four crew members too. And uh, there were a number of drivers for that, uh, different scenarios as far as, and you know, it, it's, we, we, used, we used certain scenarios to design, help design and understand the operations, but 
that one itself was, I think, based on a battery fire, right? So we don't know right now exactly what computer we're going to fly, exactly right. what the battery configuration right. is going to be. What are, and uh, we try real hard and not make sh make sure things don't catch on fire in the first place, right? So it, it would, you know, what we're driving the design as hard as we can, while well, everything's in flux. So what's the transition been for the astronaut core from shuttle to Orion now? Well, um, we shrunk. Uh, the shrunk, the crew size, you mean? Well, no, the whole uh, the office shrunk. Uh, oh, once we went, uh, when we went from the shuttle to station operations, mm. and so we have fewer astronauts in the office, uh, but we're trying to support three different programs at this point: uh, commercial crew, Orion, SLS, uh, Space Launch Initiative, whatever you want to call that variation, and space station. And so it's uh, very active and dynamic as usual in the office. Uh, you know, about just about half the office is either assigned, flying, or just return from a space station mission. So somewhere that's just around 20-ish, and we have 42, 43 active astronauts right now. Uh, so that leaves the rest of us to work on the fun stuff, you know, developing new vehicles, uh, supporting space station operations, or commercial crew uh, design, same sort of things we're doing here with Orion. Uh, so we're all very busy. Uh, and it's, uh, it's exciting. A lot of spacecraft coming up. Yeah, yeah it it's is. Exciting, yeah. It's really exciting because they're actually, there's hardware. Yeah. Plenty I mean, of it too, right? It yeah. almost seems like there was a few years without no hardware, and now it's like, eh. Well, we were, in, we were in that in between spot, right? Right. Uh, once the shuttle was retired, you, I mean, before the shuttle was retired, you couldn't devote your resources, in essence, to, to, to cutting metal, to new, yeah. to new stuff, right? So everything was sort of this PowerPoint engineering you know that, that's what we'd see we see a PowerPoint presentation, presentation yeah. of what the design was going to be mm -hmm. and uh, but now we're actually getting to see hardware actually testing Same. actual hardware mm -hmm. uh, testing you know valves and systems beating up the software mm -hmm. uh, I, I think debugging software is well, too, still take a long time and that you know that usually gets people like, I know it got people in the shuttle mm -hmm. uh, think about this last night you know, basically for 35 years, we were continuously debugging, running, and modifying the software on the space shuttle. And uh, the thing you know, is, it, it with software, so it's like it's never perfect. Right. Ever. Yeah. You're never going to end. Never going to have perfect software. We had to sit. Uh, we had this uh, thing called the sail, where we used to do all the software testing for this mm -hmm. shuttle with the crew interfaces, uh, and it was it was a very busy place, very exciting thing yeah. to be a part of as they were running shuttle, you know, all the software testing. Right. And I, I think people understand that the software, especially with this vehicle, it's going to be highly automated, is going to be uh, as important as the hardware. Oh, yeah. And That's... it's some people don't grasp that because you can put your hand mm -hmm. on a piece of hardware. Yeah. You can't put your hand and on the, a piece of the software. Thing with the software, most of our spacecraft now are, seem to be leaning towards automate, automation. Right. Yeah. So yeah. The, sol the need for s solid software is much more yeah. important. Right, and then that balance, that balance between automation and where the human interaction has right. to be right. is really important because uh, there are some things that you can just keep simple, mm -hmm. right, and have the human interface. Right. And there's some things you just want to have that, you know, that piece of hardware, that valve, that switch, that whatever, uh, that can bypass the software because... As you said, the software is never perfect. Never, yes. So we have this continuous uh, discussion and iteration as to how and where
to implement what level of automation um, because you, you could you could automate absolutely everything and uh, make it incredibly expensive and never ever actually fly it because you'd be continuously perfecting your software right so this is so this is the crew module yes now the Europeans are building the service module yes, they are. will you guys get any sort of like mock-up of that or something that I'm not sure how much what level of mock-up we're yeah. gonna get for that for we'll have something um, as far as what our interactions with it will be but we're you know we support those meetings as well right right, right, right. and uh, yeah so it, yeah we're a part of that because it, it impacts our operations right in the software way, I imagine. yeah and it's it's pretty exciting so what have been the biggest challenges besides the software things like that that you've been facing while trying to test Orion <laughs> Uh, it's it's hard like I said it's really that the biggest problem is that balance uh, you don't want to test something too early but you can't let it get too far down the road before you test it because then it may not be right all right so we yeah. did uh, at sea uh, egress training this past summer and just to get a sense of the concept that we're planning to execute is it realistic? Is it practical? Um, and so we did that this summer with crew on board out in Galveston. Uh, this January, we're actually going to go back out and call it URT-6 and recover a capsule with a U.S. Navy ship. Right, I saw that. So that was off the Pacific Coast, It right? is off yeah. the Pacific Coast. And then U.S. Navy facilitates? Yeah, they we've hi we hire them, we pay for the boat, yeah, yeah. and uh, they, gotta, they the, go get the us. The pictures are amazing of the Orion yeah. capsule. It, that capsule had a heat shield, right? Or yeah, that it? was uh, the one that used the recovery of uh, EFT-1. EFT-1, yeah. Sawyer was there for yeah. the launch. Yep. Yeah. Oh, were you? Oh, yeah. Oh, neat. I, I didn't start till the mission, the launch after that, so, yeah. Yeah. Sadly. It's, it's Alex. It's, yeah. So this uh, this winter, we're going to do that with a, a test article. Another recovery from and, the ocean. Uh, yeah, but yeah. it's you know it's just a test article. It's not right, going to be right, something right. that's flown. Mm. And we'll get to execute the, uh, you know, the plans and processes mm. and the methodology uh, as to how of, we're going to do that. Of recovering. Of recovering a capsule. Yeah. And this goes back to Grissom, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. just like all that, all that procedureing from recovering spacecraft yeah. after orbit, that's yeah. all built up in um, knowledge from Grissom yeah, it's, and on, it's, right? It's, yeah. it's, old, yeah. it's old knowledge, but it's a uh, it's it's new it's system. It's a capsule, you know? Yeah. It's a capsule. How, yeah. how much of it is playing off of that Apollo-era recovery because, style? Well, they look hard at it, but yeah. it, there's certain things that are different. A, this is a lot bigger. Much bigger, yeah. Than a Mercury capsule, which is what you know Grissom lost, and, and but uh, this is obviously a lot bigger, a lot heavier. Uh, the the systems themselves, the system we can't that dedicate the a door uh, out is different too, right? What's the, that? Uh, how they the escape hatch? Yeah, is probably much different from the. Uh, well, at sea, the idea is going to go through the top, not through the side. Right. That's and uh, you know we have the side hatch, but. And the, there's actually different stable stability configurations, which is why the balloons have to inflate to make sure we end up upright, right? right. And uh, it's they also had a, basically a task force to go get the Apollo spacecraft. Right. right, right. And it was um, we're down. We're gonna have a ship. Uh, obviously, our targeting should be a lot better than it was back then. But yeah. they came pretty close a number of times yeah, to the Apollo yeah. recoveries, right? So our hope is we'll we'll be close. The ship will come not have to go very far and uh, we'll have the teams there to get us pretty quick. Uh, there are things we, you know, as a crew member you get concerned about bobbing around in a 
in a boat without a keel. <laughs> it's sort of that wobbling. It, it can get pretty. I'm, I, I spent 14 years driving submarines, so. Oh yeah. Uh, and wow. so being on the surface of a submarine, you kind of get this sort of this, yeah. this wobbly effect. And uh, it was reassuring. I talked. We've had uh, Walt Cunningham came by the office, and we kind of focused our questions since he did a at sea recovery. Uh, what was it like, you know, when you're in the vehicle yeah, bobbing I, around? He I said it really wondered. wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, you probably don't want to be there for a day or two, which yeah. is potentially a scenario for an abort. I just feel like uh, when I land, I feel like there's just unlimited vibration and shaking yeah. in the water. There's nothing to really control the capsule well, you, in the. Yeah, it when depends it's on the sea state. So yeah. much of it is the sea state mm -hmm. uh, and the periodicity of the waves. And uh, yeah, you could, you're gonna you're gonna wallow. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna roll. You're not gonna pitch. You're gonna kind of wallow, which uh, can be very provocative. Yeah. For a deconditioned, you know, a deconditioned astronaut coming back. Right, right. Your relative hydration. After going through all that, you have to stand in the water like. Uh. Yeah. So you know, we're we're looking at that, it's, and uh, I think our preference ultimately may be to get out as soon as we can, mm -hmm. get on the in the rafts with the divers and the recovery team and then have them bring the vehicle in on its own. However, you know, potentially the sea state could be bad enough that they won't let us get out. So we need to be able to make sure we will be okay in the vehicle when it comes under the dry well, in the dry deck of the, uh, of the, of the ship. So yeah, it's, it'll be fun to, to see that this January. So this, this test in January, how do they simulate the, the safety of the people? And like, how do they simulate that? Like how, because there's not going to be people in. No. Yeah. No. So how do you? Simulate? We did that. That's what we did this summer. Right. With actual crew members and. And that other was that, that, that mock-up was a little different, right? It was kind of just to show how they get out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The actual living on it for so long. It's, it's like. Yeah. Uh, um, well, well, we I wonder if they're going to do do that kind of test before EM2. Yeah. Like, so are they going to put the? I wonder if they're going to put the capsule in the water and see time how. How long the crew can take takes to get out, or yeah, well, we'll have done that. Yeah. We'll have done that, but yeah. you don't want to practice bleeding either, right? Yeah, right, so right, right. <laughs> you get to a point where it, you know it's it's not going to be the happiest of events in your. No, but it it may not be as bad as we think. Too, right, right. Uh, so that's that's what you're you're kind of working with because yeah. uh, there's that fine line. You can't test absolutely everything. everything. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you'd like to yeah. at a certain level. There's a certain confidence you get from that. But there's also the knowledge that doesn't matter how much you test it, sometimes things go wrong. Yeah, that's what we've been learning today. Yeah. Um, you can prepare for everything, but it's the things you don't prepare for that you gotta watch out for. Which right? is really why understanding your system is so important. Mm -hmm. And that's why, I, sort of a term I probably borrowed from the submarine forces, having a, a knowledgeable operator. Right. Uh, we would often run uh, drills on the boat on ourselves and it wasn't necessarily to run through those specific procedures, but every time you would learn a little bit more about your system, and you had better understand uh, how it reacted in different configurations, and you know what the crew could do, what they can't do, and the reason one of the big drivers is because when something breaks, it's often not what you expect to break will break. So the better you understand your system, and for a spacecraft, the crew on board, the crew on the ground. You know the uh, the uh, flight flight operations people that actually control the vehicle. Their understanding is critical because they'll be able to deviate 
from where the procedures no longer cover you. And that's what we really want. We want people to fully understand the vehicle so that we can operate it safely and to its fullest capability. So how often do you do these trainings then to keep up with that? So with Orion, we're, uh, we do it as, the, as things become available. So we were over here, like I said, last month. It's usually a few months before we get, because you, you kind of want to get as much out of it as you can. You can't chew up people's schedule all the time. Uh, and we'll, we'll cycle you know, the bodies we have available in the office through this over the next few years. Uh, then at some point we'll have to assign a real crew and really train them. Uh, but like in the commercial crew cadre that we have, you know, they've been, uh, they've been doing this for a while now, but a lot of us have helped participate through the years as well. Um, and they will fully understand those first few flights, and then we'll get other people assigned as we get closer, and they'll start getting trained, and we'll have learned from that cadre. So is it getting exciting now? It's never not exciting it's, around yeah, here. It is always exciting. There's a lot of information in that interview, I know, but it was just fascinating hearing the astronaut's office still up and running, the training procedures going in for Orion, and with the water training to the land training, it's crazy. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, the, it, it was funny, just as Steve Bowen was saying, looking at the PowerPoint aspects of this thing, I was writing down those exact words. I'm not joking as as we were listening to this. And you know, one of the big things is, is, well, you know, this is just a, you know, PowerPoint exercise. Hey, gang, this is not just a PowerPoint exercise anymore. This is real hardware. They are actually, you know, testing on real hardware. And there are a lot of challenges from what I'm seeing, too, that, that because of the configuration changes, uh, there's you really don't know what you're going to be playing with from day to day, but you still have to go ahead and train. From what I'm getting, though, I'm I'm guessing Sawyer and and maybe you could comment on on this one. Um, the basics, however, are there. They're just going to be minor kind of configuration changes that they expect to come down the line, but the basic functions would will, are currently in place. At least that's what I was getting from the discussion. And that's kind of the understanding that I was getting, too, from what he's saying. Again, it's that whole concept, just like with the trainer, that things update so quickly that you kind of do like a mass update every few months as opposed to every time something changes, like he was talking about. Um, but the basis of it is there. Like, they know they're going to escape out the top or the mechanism on the side or whatever the case may be, where all the buttons and switches are. Like, you heard him say some of them are already getting worn out from practice and use. Right. So it's everything that they need is in place. And uh, you'll hear a little bit more in the next interview, but Orion is pretty much ready to go. Now it's just getting everyone fully up and into its systems and getting those little fine-tuned things down like the egress testing. Uh, interesting, sort of, he made an offhand comment about what the end of shuttle had freed up resources to do. And I just think that it's, you know, it's interesting to hear that because oftentimes, you know, especially the general public, some people even equate the end of shuttle with the end of NASA. And, and that perception is changing, but just sort of, again, underscoring the importance of having to move on to a new program. Yeah, I agree with you, Kat. In fact, if I recall exactly, uh, Steve Bowen said there are about 43 active astronauts at any given time, but a lot of the, the, the shuttle old-timers, they're actually paving the way for for the new folks to come in 
and and go ahead and and take over, so to speak. So they're actually doing the legwork to to for the next program. And in a way, what what what's what's kind of neat from what I've I've heard, Steve Bowen was was kind of ecstatic about making that kind of contribution. Okay, fine, he's not flying right now, and I don't think he he has plans to fly, but. You know, shoot, he's he's going ahead, he's making a contribution for the next program and trying to go ahead and, and get this exploration program moving. And that's dedication. So way to go, Steve Bowen. Yeah, he said uh, he probably won't fly again, but he wouldn't be upset if he uh, got the offer to go fly on Orion. <laughs> I don't doubt it. So, uh, again, he was fantastic to speak with. And afterwards, uh, Jimmy Spivey came over and he's one of the project leads at Houston when it comes to Orion. And uh, again, like we were just talking about now, how most of the things are already set in place. And if you heard last episode, you heard one clip from this interview already uh, about the duration of the mission possibly being extended from 21 days to 45 days. Uh, but there was so much more information that he gave us on Orion, the status of the vehicle, their preparations, and what the European Space Agency's... Uh, module and its delays have done with their training and getting the program ready so uh here's uh jimmy spivey talking about orion uh that is being built over uh in uh bremen germany and it's making great progress they're doing welding of, of many of the prop and uh ecosystems and we expect that to be delivered um next spring in the uh april summer of uh, 18 uh time frame to Kennedy Space Center, which they'll, they'll integrate in the ESA service module with the crew module adapter, which is also in the ONC building at Kennedy. And that crew module adapter and the ESA service module then become the service module. And then that gets attached to the crew module and then it'll go to Plumbrook, uh, Ohio for some uh, thermal and vacuum testing and then back to Kennedy for integration onto the SLS rocket for launch. What preparations have you been making then uh, for the ESA crew module, because it seems like we've got the full mock-up here for the Orion. What about uh, for testing with the service module? So for our for our training and uh, for testing, we will will test with that within you know with the two vehicles from a FOD standpoint. From a training, since the crew operates inside the the crew module, and they 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 can't egress or ingress the uh, the service module. We won't have a mock-up here of, of of that. Now we will have simulation systems of it. So when the crew is in our simulator. They'll be in a capsule that looks uh, a crew module similar to what you see behind you, and they'll have active displays and uh, controls for the spacecraft. And then computers will tell them the service module is behind them, and then they'll interact with that computer simulation. So that's how they'll interact and, and understand and learn how to fly this, the, the whole spacecraft. So how is the Orion doing then in its time frame in terms of where you expect it to be and where it actually is? Well, from a crew module standpoint, we're, we're right on schedule where we were. Uh, the ESA service module is a little bit behind from what we wanted. Uh, the agency recently announced uh, a, a three-month launch slip from a September to December date, and we're trying to hold that date. There's uh, two critical paths with that. One is the ESA service module getting delivered, and the other one is the very large hydrogen tanks uh, being produced out at the Michoud facility in New Orleans, or close to New Orleans, Louisiana, for the SLS rocket. So both of those are still in development, getting worked, but uh, it looks like that that date, with maybe you know a little bit of plus or minus month margin there, on December 2019 is looking good for us. Now, do you guys work closely with the folks who are doing the mating between SLS and, and Orion? Like, 
do you guys keep in regular touch with the SLS folks um, when it comes to this entire launch vehicle, oh, this launch system? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Yeah. We have, yeah. we have actually, we have a dedicated person at the uh, Marshall Space Flight Center. Okay. That's an FOD person. Right. Uh, so, FOD is flight yeah, flight operations direction. Sorry. Okay. So that, we've heard it. Yeah, we both work for astronauts <laughs> and the flight directors and trainers. So it's all. Gotcha. That's all group. FOD. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, yeah, so he is there and he is our point of contact there, but we, um, we work very closely with the, with the SLS developers, uh, uh, mostly from a training and simulation standpoint, they are delivering what we call vehicle emulators, okay. which uh, emulate the, 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 the computer that says this is how the spacecraft works. We're gonna have those emulators in building five here on site, and that will drive our simulation that we, when we start- When you do Orion simulations? Yes, yeah, so okay. when we do a simulation, when we do a simulation, it will be what we call an integrated simulation. Mm -hmm. So when Steve's in the Orion mock-up and he's flying, he's doing an ascent through, you know, through uh, post insertion, then the, the translunar injection burn around the moon, and then through landing. Uh, well, our computer simulations will simulate the whole uh, the, the whole gamut from pre-launch through splashdown. And so we take those emulators and we drive computer sims models that he'll go and see and he'll operate and we'll do we'll do various segments of the missions. We usually do like a pre-launch ascent mission. We'll do like an early orbit mission, and then we'll do like a in deep space mission through splashdown. So we'll we'll simulate all those uh, those scenarios, both nominal and off nominal things. We'll give him failures and see how he does working through it with him and the flight control team in junction. And uh, but yeah, so the SLS guys. And actually, just yesterday, our mission control center here in Houston, we did a test with the the avionics lab at Huntsville, Alabama, at the Marshall Space Flight Center. Right. Their avionics lab. Uh, it's called the SIL, I think it's SLS Integrations Lab. We did a connectivity test and we actually processed the SLS, uh, the core stage and upper stage data through our MCC in preparations for those simulations that we'll, do, we'll start in earnest in about a year. Wow. So we're doing those connections now. So we're processing that data. We've already processed Orion data. So we have connections from the Mission Control Center here in Houston to the Avionics Lab in Denver for Orion and then the avionics lab uh, in uh, Huntsville, Alabama at the Marshall Space Flight Center for SLS, and then also also to uh, connections to the Launch Control Center at Kennedy Space Center. So you guys are gonna consolidate all that data, and you're gonna run general simulations you of bet. EM1 and then possibly EM2 even. You uh, bet, so yeah. once, the, once those emulators, and, uh, and we'll develop more robust sims for uh, EM2. Right, right. Um, because, because obviously there's a whole new aspect to that. Yeah, right? the crude okay. mission, but yeah. you bet. We'll, we'll have, and we'll call that a simulator at that point. We'll take these emulators, mm -hmm. uh, vehicle emulators, and we'll create what we call a simulator. And we'll, we'll do that again from pre-launch through splashdown. We'll, we'll do uh, crew, crew and flight controller training. We'll start off, usually start off, we'll start off probably about L minus 18 month with classroom and then standalone, what we'll call standalone training right. for the crew. So they'll sit in our, in building five, in our, in our what we'll call our, our crew training mock-up. It'll be a little bit different than this. I mean, it'll look like this, but it'll have the computer systems in it. Well, right. this is more of a reach and viz. But we'll start that at L minus 18 months, and then at L minus 12 months, we'll start integrate sims between the crew in Building 5 and our flight control team in, in the Mission Control Center. And then about uh, launch minus six months, we'll we'll do those same sims with the Marshall Space Flight Center team and, and the Orion team and, L, and LCC. So we'll have all three centers connected together mm -hmm. for a simulation run. And, uh, and and their avionics lab. So it looked very much like the real mission. What do you guys plan to do this? 
win. Yeah. So for, for the cross the multi center so, uh, simulation. So launch minus six months. So for EM one, oh, wow. six months prior to launch, we'll do that. Now remember, EM one is an unproved mission. It's right, our right, test right. flight. Right. So that, but the crew will be following along and they'll be watching this because it's the same spacecraft and rocket, right? right. There's some are some mods from EM one. Do you think the two. astronauts? Uh, I hope they might be chosen. The the EM two astronauts might be chosen by the time EM one happens. So you think those astronauts will be sitting by, you know, with uh, uh, ground control and watching that mission as it unfolds, EM-1? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's part of our training yeah. plan that they'll, they'll yeah. and now, I mean, like, Steve right now goes to the Orion control boards. We have uh, an astronaut, Butch Wilmore, who goes to SLS control board. So they are, they're intimately involved today with the design and development, now out, now the manufacturing and, and assembly of the spacecraft and rocket so that they're, they're, uh, they understand those systems. Um, and I'm sure Steve would love to be named to be one part of the EM2 crew. <laughs> but that, that, well, when that I'm happens, but, yeah. Because I can say I know you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, but absolutely, they're, they're, part, of, they're part of the team and uh, we're, all, we're all learning together as right. we get closer to launch. That's cool. Now, EM1, um, I've heard, you know, from the, the, the team over at the ONC, they've given me kind of the shorthand of what's that. It's a full on test of all the subsystems of Orion. And uh, so can you give me just like a general overview of what that mission is gonna be like? It launches from Kennedy Space Center. Um, what, it, how many days, what are you, what's gonna happen? What are you guys looking out for on that mission? So um, there's se several key things we do, but just I'll give you a quick mission overview. Yeah. So we'll, like you said, we'll launch from Kennedy Space Center. Uh, you know, after about eight minutes, we'll separate the uh, the core stage SLS rocket. Mm -hmm. We'll still have the upper stage uh, engine that's part of the SLS vehicle. Right. Uh, that will then get us into orbit. We'll do a, a uh, we'll do probably uh, I think we'll do maybe one uh, loop around the Earth. Really? Loop, so you're yeah. going to do a slingshot around the Earth? We'll okay. we'll we'll, we'll yeah. for because we we will make sure we're ready to go and do the TLI burn. So we'll do that one loop around the Earth. And then we'll do what we call TLI, so translunar injection burn. So that'll be with the, with the big uh, upper stage engines. We'll do that burn, and then we'll head off to towards the moon. So we'll travel. It's about, uh, I think it's about a three to four day trip. Mm -hmm. So we'll travel out to the moon, and then we'll do a, what we're calling a near retrograde orbit. So if you think about the Earth here and the moon there, it's, we'll get to the moon. We'll do uh, a loop around the moon, and then do a very elliptical orbit okay. down either north or south of the moon, if you think about it in 2D terms. Is that terms. cislunar orbit? Yes, so that'd be a cislunar orbit. And, and that will actually take us farther than we went on uh, the Apollo missions. Oh, wow. Okay. And so we'll do... For, the, further out beyond yes. the moon's... Yes. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, now we're not landing on the moon like right, Apollo right. did, but we'll yeah. we go further out. Mm -hmm. And so we'll do that, and our plan is to do uh, have a 21-day mission. There is some talk of maybe extending that to a 45-day mission. So Because, uh, yeah, Ju I think it was Jules who uh, down at ONC. Mm -hmm. He said uh, uh, it was going to be a twenty day. So yeah. I think that was the, what they had told me last year. Yes, twenty one day. So you guys are exploring plane. the opportunity. Absolutely. To yeah. So we'll look at our consumables on board the yeah. spacecraft and how it's performing, yeah. and, and then we'll, we'll then we'll get back into a, what I call a, a low uh, lunar orbit, and then you know come back home, do the kind of the slingshot back home, and then land in uh, the Pacific Ocean, very similar to uh, the Apollo missions, and then do recovery. But the other thing, so that's kind of the mission in, in, in the mission profile. But the thing, your, the second part of your question about what are we going to do? So we're checking out all the systems, right? Yeah. So now there's some systems that won't be on EM1 because it just doesn't make sense to fly them mm -hmm. because there's no crew on board. Right. But uh, we'll be checking out all the navigational like aids. Like environmental controls, probably. Some yeah. environmental controls, yeah. like our like a CO2 removal uh, right, right, system. Right. That's not going to be on. Mm -hmm. 
that one that's a very important system <laughs> for the crew however the system that we're going to fly on Orion has been flying on space station that system we, we've taken it and flown it to space station and we've used our CO2 removal system that's going to be on Orion and it's it's done CO2 removal and performed very well by the way mm -hmm. on the space station day so we do, do use space station to test certain systems out but majority so GNC all of our navigation aids uh, the computers um, uh, uh, and just you know the structural performance we'll have strain gauges and things across the vehicle so we'll see the asset performance uh, and, 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 and very important <laughs> then the entry so our entry guidance um, how our software performs if you know if we need to use what we call um, a fitter which is a fair response if mm -hmm. something happens did that software respond as we wanted to see it on EM2 right. and then for entry you know again our guidance control how do we do on landing and the, sh the parachutes very important you know right. we have 11 chutes that are going to come out mm -hmm. and uh, slow the spacecraft down and then the heat shield too performance so we'll get to see all those major events a lot of separation events you know because panels come off right, there and right, ascent right. And you also know, the SLS, I mean, just the combining of these two vehicles, you guys are watching that so closely. Yeah, so we'll get to the see the performance of, of all that. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All that integrated performance we'll see during the ascent post-insertion and then through the TLI burn and then all this, what I would call the spacecraft systems. And we're even, FOD is even proposing at this time uh, several things we can check out, what we're calling them detailed test objectives mm -hmm. or DTOs. Mm -hmm. So we have a list of things that we've been talking internal about that we would like to take to the program manager and say hey here's some things some ideas that we could check out maybe you switch to this system and, and kind of ring out the system on EM1 so we understand its capabilities and it, any vulnerabilities prior to EM2 and the crew mission. So if EM1 is a successful flight you know that profile is successful for you guys EM2 could essentially be the furthest humans have traveled. It will be. Okay. It will be because we'll, we'll fly a similar orbit. Yeah. So you, you don't see any change in, in that flight path from EM1 to EM2? No, probably not from, from 1 to 2. And then on EM3, we start uh, building other exploration components, and, and it, it'll, look, it'll look a lot different. But each mission gets more and more complex. Yeah. All right. And you guys are funded up until, Orion program is funded up until EM, EM2, do you know? Or that may be an administrative question. Well, uh, I can uh, answer it. Yeah, you can. <laughs> no, no, please do if you can. So, <laughs> so for the uh, so Lockheed Martin has the uh, the Orion contract today, and that actual that that development contract goes through EM two. Okay. So yes, so they are now looking at how to extend that contract for for EM three and submissions, and then uh, Boeing is the prime contractor for SLS, and I I'm not sure exactly where their contract breakpoint is, but that's just normal business that we do with our our contractors and primes. You know, we set a contract at certain dates, and then we renegotiate after those things are close to being done. Okay, so you guys are funded to EM two. Yes. So then what do you guys say to the naysayers that don't think it's going to happen or that are skeptical or have it, what do you say to them? Uh, I just, <laughs> if they could get to the Florida and look at the, look at the spacecraft, I'd, I'd say just go take a look at it. I mean, we have a real spacecraft in the ONC and it has been powered up and we've done mission simulation runs with it and it's, it's ready to go. And, and if you can, uh, if you can get to Bremen, Germany, Germany, you can look and see uh, the great progress that the um, our European partners are making on the, the the service module. And if you can get to Michoud at uh, we, we, at I'm New actually, Orleans, I am going to Bremen because the, the, the big are, space conference next year is in Bremen. Well, you Lockheed's the sponsor. But you can you can see uh, yeah. the space uh, EM1 hardware that's ready to go yeah. or in its yeah. final stages of manufacturing. And actually, at at Michoud. The EM2 crew module 
the, the primary structure has been delivered there. So the panels that they'll weld together to form the, the crew module for EM2 is already at Michoud. We uh, Butch and I were out there about uh, so, two weeks ago and looked at that. So what there's there's a the pressure vessel is at oh, the ONC, right? Mm -hmm. And then what's what's that uh, in in Louisiana? So the the next one. The, yeah, EM, the EM2 oh, the M2. Okay, EM2. Okay, like, yeah, yeah, so the EM1 right, vehicles right. at Kennedy. Yeah, and so EM2 the, is Yeah, that. so you know we have to we build it right. Mm -hmm. So, but the the, the major uh, the the major um, components of it that you weld together that become the cone mm -hmm. sitting behind you have been uh, machined and delivered to machine for welding. So, wow, so EM2 is already. It's it already it's in real. Work. It's under construction. Yeah, yeah. and she's a great tour. If you like big engineering, it yeah. is. Awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna go there it's next. It's great. It yes, great. We're on a world tour here. So that's yeah. what I'd say to them. We have a lot of hardware that's ready to no, go I mean, fly we, and integrate. No, I mean, we work in the press pool at Kennedy. Yeah. We we know that the Orion okay. team is 12 hours a day, almost yeah. seven days a week. But the listeners don't know that. They don't it's know great that. To hear yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great to hear you say it. We know this. We know. We see them working every day, seven days a week. Okay, great. So yeah, we know, but. It Not is. that we would rest on our laurels, but EFT1 was awesome. Amazing. <laughs> it was one of the biggest. Well, I was going to say, I, yeah. I want the flight control team to behave like they did on EFT1. Yeah. There was nothing better yeah. than watching Mike Sarafin sitting there bored to tears yes, for that sir. entire flight because everything worked. Yeah. And he's sitting there like just waiting well, for yeah, something to fail. What's your reaction from EFT1 since we're here? Like what? It was I mean, cool. just <laughs> give us what your best take on it was. Like successful completely? What were some things you guys were looking at for? Like, just give us your take on it. I know it was a couple of years back. Well, I think it was a great success. We, yeah. I mean, we learned a lot. We learned a lot in, in you know, if you talk to Jules, I, he'll, yeah. he'll certainly tell you that he learned a lot in yes. the manufacturing yes. process, yeah. you know, and, and we've done things so much quicker this time with the, with the EM1 crew module than we did the EFT1 because we learned uh, things. Right. And we've changed manufacturing techniques. I mean. Uh, the heat shield design. Yeah, apparently. the heat shield design after EM1, we looked at that. We actually changed the heat shield design. For uh, EFT1, it was a monolithic, so one big kind of a spray right. uh, of the Abacote material. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the EM1 design, it's now, it's actually blocks. It's, it was easier to manufacture. Mm -hmm. So it's more like, if you take a shuttle tile, we basically form blocks of the Abacote so material. So it's multiple, multiple tiles, oh, yeah. tiles yes. in each block. Yes, yes. Okay, and, so, and, and so that was actually easier to adhere mm -hmm. and get on the spacecraft, and it saved us a lot of time, and it saved us money. Money too. Wow. So we learned things like that, and that, and, and the Abacote material is still the same. That stuff performed great. Uh, great. I mean, it's an, it's a, an ablative material, so it, it basically burns away as we come in. It did exactly what we wanted to do, and so we did. Uh, the structures did uh, performed well. Our, our computers that uh, and a lot of the computers that we flew on EFT1 very similar on, on EM1. So we got to test all that out. So very very successful. So again, as he emphasized there, people are working on this seven days a week. So I know we've had discussions about, you know, the progress of EM1 and the future of the program and both on air and off air. And uh, it's nice to hear that they're working on it and that a lot of it is done and ready to go, at least from their standpoint. Yeah, sorry. I want to go ahead and say thanks for answering, asking that question, because that would be the question I would have asked. Uh, in in a case in point, um, Jimmy Spivey there was basically yelling and screaming how beautiful EFT one was, and I think we made similar comments on the last program. Uh, I believe there was only really two uh, <laughs> two malfunctions on that mission that they really had to worry about. It was really really minor stuff. One I think was a sensor dropout, and the other one was one of the uh, uh, one of the balloons on the um, 
on the command module after it splashed down didn't inflate, and uh, they they had to go ahead and figure out why. These balloons, again, as Steve Bowen pointed out, and for those of you who remember the Apollo program, um, if the, the the capsule had landed in a you know side position, the balloon would inflate and right the capsule back up. Uh, and on EFT one, that uh, one of the I believe one of the balloons did not do what it was supposed to do. Uh, and hearing too that they've learned uh, something from the heat shield, and they've they've gone ahead and they've they've buttressed the heat shield up a little bit, little bit more. Great stuff! Great stuff here. Yeah, I was excited to hear all the talk about Brayman because I'll be there for IAC next year. That, exactly. I was going to. You know. So will I. <laughs> As you know, it's funny. I pointed that out when um, when he mentioned that. Uh, yes. <laughs> there was hardware being manufactured in Bremen. I automatically thought, wow, um, Lockheed is the primary sponsor of the International Astronautical Congress. And it just so happens it's being hosted in Bremen. Yeah. I'm excited. My, actually, it's my roommate, that's her hometown. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So I will be looking for you to see what, you know, where we can eat some food. I keep telling her, I was like, hey, let's do a paper together and then you, we could go together. <laughs> there you go. The other thing too, uh, and again, I believe I, I I had mentioned this on the last program. For those of you who who are just listening for the first time, uh, was one of the big deals uh, that a lot of the naysayers have been have been talking about has been the life support system on on the Orion spacecraft, saying that uh, uh, some of these elements have never flown before. Blah blah blah. Not really. Uh, these these elements have been flying on on ISS now for some time they have just not been integrated into Orion but these elements are are not you know completely new we've been using them for it for some time so again sorry thanks again for for making sure that uh, that point got got stressed and I'm, I'm really really happy that you did ask that question because I'm hoping some of the naysayers are listening to this program and Saying, hey, you know, maybe we ought to th rethink, uh, rethink support for this because again, it's happening, folks. It's it's not a PowerPoint rocket anymore. We're not talking PowerPoint slides anymore, like we were with Constellation. This is real hardware, and we're about ready to fly. So, just fasten your seatbelts. People are working seven days a week on this, and again, with Constellation, there was Ares One X, but. That was just that one test flight, and then it was canceled. This one, there's hardware for multiple missions being made. There's testing already going underway for the astronauts. Like you mentioned, life support systems are already being tested on space station. There is hardware and software all around the country that is not only being made, but that is already made. And Robin, you and I have seen that EM-1 capsule in the operations and checkout building. Many, many times. Exactly. And so we know it's real. We can... Say it's real because we've seen it. We've seen it built up. We haven't just mm -hmm. seen it. We've seen physical progress on the hardware. Exactly. I remember when it was just a shell. It was just like a little metal hull. I think we have pictures somewhere on the website yeah, of that. Yeah, we do. It was a neon green skeleton at one point, a couple of years ago. Yeah, that, that's that's the point where I think we were at uh, EFT1, Sawyer, if I'm not, not mistaken. They were just kind of getting that thing together. Uh, that was OA4, yeah. yeah. We got to see it early on, and I've been back since, and it's, you know, there's a capsule ready. Yeah. It Like they said, they're ready on their end. Uh, you know, ESA's a little bit behind on their module, but the training there is still going on. Uh, 
hardware is being built, connectors are being built, things to, you know, test with SLS are being built, software is already being sent in to be testing in the building where we were earlier, uh, where they were doing the stuff for Starliner. It's it's going to happen. And uh, it was a great update on the progress of it in that it's happening, it's real, and this vehicle that we've all just talked about and we've speculated about is coming to life. And one thing that I can really think of is uh, when I went to the visitor complex at the Kennedy Space Center uh, for one of these launches, they have like a an outline of kind of the size of what the Orion capsule is going to be on the inside. And I'm like, there's no way this can be real. It's not going to be that big or that size. And then going there to Houston and seeing the mock-up and taking a picture with an astronaut in front of it, which it's a fantastic photo of us uh, in front of the capsule, and seeing that size of it and going, holy cow, this is actually real. They're they're not just making this up like, oh, this is going to be. It actually is. Yeah, this ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around anymore, guys. This is, this is really uh, distinct hardware. This is really going to happen, folks. And... Uh, uh, it may not happen as scheduled, but it will happen. Exactly. So that's why I loved that interview. So thank you to Steve Bowen and Jimmy Spivey for talking to us in Building 9 there. And again, just seeing everything in Building 9, like that beam module, I don't know what... I know you and I are uh, beam fans. Uh, so uh, what did you think seeing beam? I, I freaked out. Well, I'm a big, big old aerospace fan, and... Um... <laughs> I was there when they launched Beam to the space station. I was at Kennedy, and I interviewed Bigelow, which was pretty cool. He's, you know, and our conversation was about deep space habitats and uh, radiation protection, which, you know, soft goods they're going to use. And obviously, they're already using soft goods and expandable um, material. But um, it's the Beam is, is a very unique thing. It's a privately owned habitat module that the expectations for it were 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 sort of low um there was issues getting it expanded when it was attached but after the year of testing um it's become a useful component at the space station and now nasa is going to extend its life to and be used for storage and obviously whatever they learn from it going on and whatever they've learned from it for the past year will inform on the larger habitat modules that Bigelow is planning for cislunar orbit. And I know they're part of the next step program, which they're going to, you know, uh, bid for habitat modules that will go to Mars. There's a bunch of folks that are that are in involved involved with uh, next step two right it's boeing lockheed uh, orbital atk bigelow and i know i'm missing one but those are the main four i know but again just seeing the full mock-up of orion seeing the full size and scale of each module of the space station just you know there's a skeleton of the uh of the cupola right there and then we're going through that and we're just cool. peeking inside the cool. japanese yeah. module and as we go by and we again we walked around the entire outside of the space station basically mm-hmm. without dying which was the best part <laughs> to, to get back to to get back to beam just for a second and again to uh again if if, if i'm not mistaken they're going to use that module right now for storage uh, partially there was i feel like that was the main 
the main usage going forward, um, according to NASA's press release. If if memory serves, the the ISS has the volume of about a, I believe a, a six bedroom house. But if if anybody you know has their own house or their own apartment or something like that, they understand that you know shoot you've got to you've got to figure out where to store stuff. And right. and and it's complicated. I yeah. mean, with all the with all the shipments they get, um, just we watched a video from Kennedy the other day and leading up to CRS 13, um, when they unload every single item, they need to make an exact directory of where they stuck that item, no matter how awkward the, the little space is. Um, just because there's so little room, they just got to jam things in. I heard a story, actually I've heard multiple stories about tools getting misplaced for weeks at a time. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And, you know, having Beam there is just just going to be a you know a godsend because now you've got an additional place to to, to go ahead and play stuff just as much as you had that uh, what one of the uh, the old MPLMs uh, that were brought on board and uh, now it is also part of the station and it's being used now for for storage too so you've got two options there and and this is you know the more storage you got up there the better. Always. And that applies to everything in space or Earth. More space for storage, the better. That should be our motto here. More space. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the uh, the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, the beam, I think it could hold a little over 500 cubic feet, if, if I remember correctly. Again, when I saw it, I don't know if it was bigger or smaller than I expected it to be. It was definitely not the size that I expected, but looking at it, you could see that that is actually a lot of storage. It's a trick of the eye because of the the, the accordion shape and and the and the wedges. Um, I you can't really tell how much cubic space is in it from outside correctly, but you know when when I see videos of it on the space station and the astronauts going in there, it does look pretty spacious. It looks like my first few apartments in Brooklyn were bigger than <laughs> the first few apartments in Brooklyn. So, yeah, whatever I could afford. Yeah, it sounds like my house. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and, and again, the, the, these expandable modules, they're, they're made of uh, what kind of material are, are, are they made of? Just, just for, for folks that don't know about, about Beam. Well, the exact, I mean, from what I understand, the exact makeup of the material is proprietary, right. but it's soft goods. Um, it's, it's not, it's somewhere between, you know, hard, a hard material and fabric. Mm -hmm. Um, just to make a quick joke here, if you read the New York times article, uh, this weekend, Bigelow's involvement with UFOs, oh, um, it's, just, it's, yeah, drawing, I read it. it's drawing I'm... more suspect to Beam jokingly but yeah um you know it's soft goods and that's what bigelow is about it's about launching lightweight material um stuff that can be launched in the payload fairings of rockets we already have they've already have um, a couple of agreements i don't know if they're fully contracts yet but they have um agreements with united launch alliance to get uh their next uh, uh expandable module which i believe is the b330 a lot more space and they're calling it a fully autonomous space station once deployed and expanded. So the whole point of the soft goods is lightweight launch, um, compact launches. Um, you don't, you don't want to be, they have this idea that it's impossible to launch giant habitats on, you know, the rockets that we have and they're right. And they want to make it cost effective also. 
soft goods is what they're focused on. And from my conversation with Boogalow, that is what they're looking at for radiation protection and protection from cosmic storms and things like that uh, going forward in the future. And Bigelow is, you know, when it comes to that next, next step two, Bigelow is going to be bidding fiercely. And I, in my opinion, the front runner, you know, the front runners on that are like uh, right now they're, they're looking at Orbital and you know, Orbital is part of Northrop now. So Northrop is going to have a big advantage given their, their long history. Uh, Lockheed is, you know, they have Orion, and this habitat module for Next Step is supposed to be able to work with Orion. So I think from that alone, Lockheed might be at the front of the line in terms of bidding for that habitat contract. And they are already building a mock-up habitat in Colorado. Stay tuned is is all we can tell you. Let's see who wins that contract. <laughs> that 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 contract award is going to be on a level of science fiction. I mean, yeah. that that module is where humans are going to live for months on the journey on the I'm not going to say journey to Mars. I'm going to say crewed mission to Mars. Um, you know, we've watched all these science fiction films for how long now? Each each space film has its own version of a, Mar- a habitat going to Mars. So many films and so many books and television shows. For you know, for the first time, whoever wins that contract, whether it be Bigelow or Lockheed or Orbital or, or Boeing, that's going to be the future. That's going to be what we you know the next few years of exploration. That's going to be our home. So that that award is pretty important in history, I think. Yeah, and and the other thing, too, is I was listening in on the uh, NASA's uh, uh, National Advisory Council meetings, and one of the one one of the, one of the requirements uh, for the for the deep space gateway that they were that they were talking about, and again, this is going to play into that um, in in the in the next next step two program. Um, is that the the whole facility should be able to go ahead and be able to change orbit for specific missions? Like for instance, we're not talking about an ISS in, in uh, lunar orbit anymore. We're talking about a facility that could go ahead and change its orbit to meet a specific mission. Like for instance, if you need a polar orbit, you want to go ahead and put a a rover on on either either of the lunar poles, and you need you know autonomous control of that rover. You could do it from 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 the uh, from the deep space gateway, or you want to go ahead and move the whole thing out to, to out out to L two. I believe there's going to be small thrusters that will be able to able to make make you do that, or just change the orbit, you know, to specific to fit a specific mission. It's exciting stuff going on. Yeah, and that sounds like something that we that NASA is going to bring from the the mission formerly known as the Asteroid Redirect Mission. Right. The repositioning of a cislunar habitat. Um, the Deep Space Gateway is what we're, you know, we have now. But, you know, that journey to Mars roadmap, the habitat was always going to be something that was forged in cislunar space. Right. And one of its first missions was going to be the Asteroid Redirect Mission. Now, from what I learned from Lockheed a couple of years ago, when they first started designing their habitat, was that it would have small propulsion systems, but it would be generally guided by Orion while in cislunar habit in cislunar space, um, and that would have applied to ca- the asteroid capture. And I don't know how much of that is going to be applied to the deep space gateway. Is you know whatever whoever wins that contract for that deep space gateway habitat 
will obviously have to integrate with Orion somehow, right? Well, I understand that, that Orion is going to be, you know, permanently tended while there's crew there. And I understand, too, they're talking about using the solar electric propulsion system for, for the Deep Space Gateway. Right. So uh, there, there's your answer right there. So it was a, a fantastic time there. And again, um, that was... Just a brief summary of all the amazing things we got to see at Houston. We did not go into Mission Control, but I think we got a fantastic overview of some of the amazing things that people might not know about, because people know about Mission Control. I don't think they realize all the full-scale mock-ups with the Neutral Buoyancy Lab and the mock-up facility in Building 9, the training that's going on with the different simulators, both the full versions of the Sims and the little PTTs, the smaller versions. Uh, there's so much happening at Johnson, and we've had listeners uh, in Houston, a lot of people listen from Houston, a lot of people that work at Johnson listen to us, and uh, as I found out at the last ISS conference, and I felt terrible that we'd never actually been down there and done it justice, and I hope that we were able to do a little bit of justice to some of the amazing work that's going on in Houston, and once again, a huge thank you to uh, astronaut Steve Bowen, astronaut Mike Fink, and to Jimmy Spivey for all talking with us. And the biggest of thank yous to Brandy Dean with Public Affairs for helping to set all of this up. Thank you, Brandy, if you're listening. And um, I hope this resonates with everyone that lives in Houston. Um, I, I was really honored to be there. Um, I hate your traffic, <laughs> um, but I had a really great time. It was worth a an eight almost an it was almost an eight hour round trip to to drive in there. And let me tell you, we drove through back roads. Uh, from Waco to to Houston, uh, there and back, and um, it was beautiful countryside. Uh, Central Texas is beautiful, um, and we had a really great time. It's a beautiful part of town. The people were so kind, so in kind, Houston. so nice. Uh, downtown yeah. was actually very nice to drive by too. It's yes. a beautiful skyline. And yeah, it was really cool. Just a fantastic trip overall. So thank you, and uh, thank you, Robin, for joining me on that trip. Thanks also. for having me. It was fun. So with that, I think that brings this insanity to its conclusion. <laughs> but I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here for this fantastic Christmas, New Year, end of year special. So thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sorry, and I just want to go ahead and say uh, a shout out again to everybody over at the Johnson Space Flight Center and to Brandy Dean for hosting uh, you two knuckleheads over there and putting <laughs> up with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Understatement. Um, also, just to point out, Mark Radiman couldn't be here with us. He's over uh, dealing with uh, his uh, first robotics team, and we wish them well in the next campaign. And as always, thanks to Astronomy FM for their continued support. But also, again, thanks to you folks that go ahead and tune in to us every every two weeks to hear about what's going on with your space program and uh thank you so much for making this part of your uh, your podcasting listening habits and uh again season's greetings to everybody listening and thanks very much and sawyer robin bang up job great stuff and and thanks for sharing it with us today i really do appreciate it was that a joke because i hit my head <laughs> not at all happy holidays everybody and uh I will. I have a feeling I'll be back on the show in the future. Oh, I I hope so. I, I, I know it, Robin. I <laughs> we know had it. too much fun. We had too much yes. fun. Thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. It was an absolute pleasure as always. And Robin will have to talk. Maybe we can do something from IAC next year. Yes, we're. Yeah, I mean, let's. We <laughs> Definitely. Might as well. we'll be in Germany. Let's go find Lockheed Martin. 
<laughs> no, definitely. And I just want to uh, wish everyone joy during this festive season uh, and hope that everyone gets to spend time with the people whom they care and love about. And I am blessed and happy and lucky as always to get to spend time with the crew of Talking Space. Um, and I am very excited to to just see this year come to a close and to see what's happening in the coming year for Talking Space. So thanks, Sawyer and Jean and Robin and Mark. Uh, even though you're not here, I got to be a little bit of you today with my color commentary. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. And again, thank you so much for joining us, Robin Simigal, who is the uh, Spaceflight contributor over at Wired Magazine. Thank you. And of course, thank you for listening, whether this is your first time, this is your first year, or whether you've been with us for the last nine seasons. I want to thank you so much for joining us for our end of the year special here. I hope everyone enjoys their holidays and New Year and gets to spend it with people that they enjoy spending time with, that they care about. And uh, we will see you all next year for the start of season 10 of Talking Space. As crazy as that is to say, 10 seasons in. We hope you will join us for that. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Mm-hmm.